Um, my name's, if you didn't hear me, my name's Jeremy. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you're new with us, I'd love to meet you if I hadn't got a chance to uh, meet you face-to-face. Um, feel free to hang around afterwards. I would love to uh, just meet you face-to-face. We're continuing on in our series that we're calling The True and Better Story. This is week four in the series. And uh, we find ourselves today moving through the Old Testament um, right after Genesis 3. Last week we looked at the fall when sin came into the world. And now we're going to look at what happens next in this story. And we're only taking a few weeks on this, so we're going to move quick um, but we are moving on in the story. And if you miss the story or don't know a lot about those first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve and everything else. And then he puts them, um, creates them in this garden called Eden. And he basically says, this, this is your garden. This is your garden to enjoy, to enjoy everything that I've created, to um, have relationship with me to um, spend time with me, to walk with me, to talk with me. And this is, this is what he's given Adam and Eve. This is what he's given the apex of his creation, human beings, right? And they find themselves in Eden. And this is, everything is good. God says it's very good. When very good comes out of the mouth of God, it is very, very good. And he says, this is all that's yours. Just don't eat from this one tree. This one tree in the middle of garden, don't eat from it. But everything else is here for your enjoyment. For your enjoyment, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, subdue everything around you, and, and basically push out the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world. Like that was the goal of Adam and Eve. That was their purpose. But things turned dark, which we looked at last week. Genesis 3, the serpent comes in. He tempts Adam and Eve. They fall to this temptation, trusting the serpent, trusting themselves, and rebelling against a good creator God that has provided everything for them in the garden. Everything was provided for them, and they chose to rebel, chose to go their own way, chose to trust themselves, chose chose to trust what the serpent was promising them over the promises of God. And things are broken now. Eden is gone, things would continue to get darker in the world. And Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, if you'll remember, and they cannot come back into the garden. No human can enter the garden again on their own will. And we've, we talk about, we've talked about story a lot the last couple of weeks, and last week was the, cli- the, the, the crisis or the conflict in the story, right? And any really good story or movie um, you see, um, there's this, after the crisis moment, there's this moment where things feel hopeless, right? You have kind of that, that, uh, that, that adrenaline rush or that, that tension you get from, from seeing the crisis, and then after the crisis, you're left with a little bit of what now? How does this get fixed? If you think of um, the, the, the Avengers um, Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, right? Those are two movies that, 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 that really are one movie split into two parts. And at the end of that first one, Infinity War, once Thanos gets the stones, like the, and then um, this spoiler alert, I think, the, I think it's, it's late enough now that I can do this. But basically Thanos, sorry kids if, you're, if your parents are waiting. Um, well, I'll just say it. something bad happens, right, at the end of that movie. A lot of people leave, um, and, um, it, but, but it's dark, right? If that movie ends, it is dark, and it's like, wow, that's heavy. 
And even the beginning of the second movie starts that way. And that's, they're, they're, you, that whole movie is building up to the, the crisis at the end of that movie. And then it hits, and you're like, wow, this is not good. There's this feeling, these, these feelings of hopelessness. I also um, w- w- had the opportunity um, to go to a funeral on Friday. It was uh, the dad of a really good friend of mine um, growing up in high school, and we're still friends now. He's a pastor. And I went to his, his, his dad's funeral on Friday, and uh, his dad was a follower of Jesus, a believer, and so there was hope in the funeral. Um, but that also happens when you lose a loved one, right? You have this, this crisis point, and then I think, I think of, of, of his family now. You've kind of a few days have passed since his dad has passed away, and you have the funeral. And there, that, uh, that crisis point is, is kind of done, and now there's probably feelings of, like, what's now? Like, what's next? How do we function without dad in our lives? Like, what's going to happen? How, how, is this, how are we going to heal? How are we going to maybe fix this? And this is where we find ourselves in the biblical narrative. Sin must be punished. Like I said, Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, never to return again. But if you remember, before uh, they left, God killed an animal, um, covered themselves, but made, made, basically clothes for them, clothed Adam and Eve, and then removed them from the garden so they wouldn't experience this, this shame and this guilt once they left the garden and went out into um, the rest of the world that God had created. And this begins this cycle we see all throughout the Old Testament, even the cycle, if we were honest, that we go through as well oftentimes of sin and the forgiveness of God. You see, shortly after in Genesis 4, um, after the fall, um, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Horrific, right? Like, how can it get worse? Well, it does get worse. A brother kills another brother. And then the, but, but then you have Seth that's provided, right? But then a few generations later, you have Noah, and you have um, the flood. And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe out um, the earth because the sin is so great, right? But he, he preserves Noah. And things continue to go worse and worse. But then you have this cycle of God forgiving them. It goes like rest. God, the, people, people, the people of God are, have been delivered. There's rest. Things are good. And then God's people sin. They, they run away from God. They rebel against God. God God's anger is stirred up by their disobedience. And then they, they, God brings in judgment, right? They're, they're consequences to wake them up, to show them that they've run away from God. Then, they, then God's people become distressed, right? They're saying, we can't do this. What's happened? They kind of wake up. And then they cry out, God, save us. Please save us. We're yours. We promise we won't do it again. God is slow to anger. He forgives them. He delivers them. He gives them rest, and then the cycle repeats itself over and over and over throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This is the cycle, right, of the, the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. And Genesis 6, 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is shortly before... Um, Noah, before the flood, before God wiped out um, all of the earth, other than Noah and a few others, um, in a flood. Humanity, humanity is a mess where we're at in the story right now. We're a mess. Humanity is a mess, and God is giving us a picture of how humanity has failed 
to live out the purpose that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden, which was to extend Eden, be image bearers throughout the world, through, through, through multiplying God's image throughout the world. Pe- the people around them would see God, and they would give glory to God. This was God's design from the beginning, yet they have failed spiritually. We'll see this idea of barrenness today in our story, and the, the, the God's people, the Israelites, are barren spiritually right now. They're not producing the fruit God wants them to where we're at in the story. But even in the midst of these, this, this scripture, like Genesis 6-5, like God is just, he's, he's just brokenhearted by the people's sin. You have Genesis 3-15 that we talked about last week that we can go back to and remember that God has already put forth a promise. He says, talking to the serpent, talking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is talking about Jesus and, and, and coming uh, through Mary, right? And Jesus coming into the world, and, and Satan getting, getting uh, the best of Jesus in, in one way, right? He, he hurts Jesus, causes Jesus to have to go to the cross, to be put through pain and suffering. But Jesus ultimately will crush sin, Satan, evil, death's head, and end it once and for all. This is the promise we can hold on to in even that dark chapter in Genesis 3. It begins with Adam, and we see that go through Seth, Adam and Eve's, one of Adam and Eve's um, sons, and then eventually gets to Noah, and uh, remnants preserved in Noah's family. Then we get to Shem, and you eventually get to where we find ourselves today. Between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, um, uh, approximately 2,000 years have passed. A long time has passed. The cycle of, of, of the people being disobedient to God, this, this, this has been a long, long time. And then God comes in in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in, in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, again, comes on at Genesis, you have Genesis 3, you have Genesis 6, him saving Noah, and here's another hopeful passage. Okay, God's still working. God still remembers. God still is, is working towards fulfilling his promise. And God chooses this man named Abram to be God's instrument, to be a blessing to all the nations. And it's apart from how Abraham lived or who he was, right? Like God just shows up here and initiates this relationship. We have, no, we have never heard of Abram until this point, right? Even though he's in the line of the descendants from Adam through Seth and through Noah, through, through Shem, and, and, and now you come down to Abram. But 2,000 years have passed since that promise in Genesis 3. And this man Abram was not... From, from all we can tell, he was not living a righteous life. Right? He was not following God. Like, really, how could he, right? Like, this was, there was no scripture at the time. Maybe he got some stories of God passed down from his descendants. But again, 2,000 years have passed. And it says he's living in the land of in Ur, which is kind of the capital region or city of a, of a nation people group called the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were um, godless, evil people. Um, and they did not honor God. They wanted nothing to do with God. And we'll continue to see them pop up throughout the Old Testament. But he was part of the Chaldeans. 
They are an, an idolatrous people. They were people who do not care about the biblical God. So you have, this is, this is where Abram and, and, and Sarai, his wife, were, were, were there, and, and Sarai was, was barren, the scriptures tell us. Right? So, so what, what, there's nothing in them, Abraham and Sarah, to, to, for, for them to warrant God coming to them and choosing them for this role, for this task that God chose them for. And it said Abraham, Abraham trusted God and he believed God, and then he got up and left. Right? So obviously he, he's told what to do, and then he just leaves. Right? He just leaves. And then in Genesis 15, so he's left, he's gone out from Ur, he's gone into Canaan, and God comes to him again in Genesis 15. And while they are talking, Abraham says, hey, you know what, you promised me children. Like you, this, this promise was based on us having children, and we don't have children. What's going on? God, he's getting impatient, like all of us would. So in Genesis 15, there at the beginning of the chapter, he takes them out um, and tells him to look up at the sky. Look at the sky, Abram. See the stars. See all of the stars. These will be your, like your descendants. This is how many descendants you'll have. Look at the stars. Have hope. Be patient. I'm working. And then in verse 6 of chapter 15, which will be on the screens, he says, um, Abram says to uh, God, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then God says to him, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So this is really important. That verse 6 is, is, is giant in our faith. It's huge, right? Only God can determine what is good, right, and perfect. He is the creator. He is perfect. And only he gets to determine what is good and right, what is good and evil, right and wrong. And Abraham, Abram, at this point, um, not Abraham yet, Abram's righteousness means that God declares him to be righteous, right? He declares him to be righteous. This is like uh, he, he's given the righteousness of, of, of God. It's imputed to him, the scriptures will say, through God's grace, right? Through God's grace, merely because God just shows up on the scene, uh, tells him to go. He believes God and just goes, and it says that Abraham's righteousness was given to him by God. It was credited to him. Abraham's righteousness that means that he's in a right relationship with God because of the faith that he has inside of him. This is how Abram becomes Abraham, but we'll see that here in a few minutes. Let's keep going in this particular passage. But he said, O Lord God, he's still doubting, he's still wondering, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Like, I need, some, I need some more, right? I need, some more, I need something more tangible. I need something to be sure, to, 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 to grab onto to hope. And then God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, Okay. And it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and uh, a great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. I skipped a few verses there just to kind of get to the main point of the narrative there. So God tells Abram, cut a heifer, a goat, a ram, right? Cut them in half and make two rows where there's like an aisle to pass through. They don't cut the birds, just the, the larger animals there. Um, and he makes an aisle. And, you can, and it says the darkness has fallen, 
right? So this is a, a very heavy kind of ceremonial, kind of formal moment out here between Abram and God, right? And this kind of feels a little bit like Harry Potter-ish to us, I think. It's like, okay, what's going on here? This is a little weird, right? Um, but this is how, through, if you study history, especially in this time period, when oaths were made, when covenants were made, when agreements were made, this was a popular way to do it um, in that time period, even outside of the biblical realm, right? In other pagan uh, religions and other kind of uh, worldviews, this was a popular way to kind of um, cement or make an agreement more um, important or permanent, right? And this was, this was, there was, there's symbolism here, okay? There's a lot of symbolism that goes on in what's happening. And then the smoking pot and the flaming torch pass through these. And this, if, we, if you read the Old Testament at all, you'll know that these things often represent the presence of God. So the presence of God is passing through these, these animals who've been split apart, probably the top half here, the bottom half here, these animals on either side of each other, and this pod and this torch is, is, is going through, passing down this aisle. So there's something important going on here. And we have to remember that Abraham's still doing nothing, right? He's still there. He's probably what? Maybe still sleeping, but looks like some time has passed. So he's probably watching this, right? God, do this. Um, and again, Abraham's done nothing to warrant God's blessing here, still, right? He has, he's left God. He's, he's shown him that, hey, I, I believe to some degree, right? He's left his people, but still, there's still a lot undone with the story, Right? And Abram was not, and we'll see even after Abraham becomes uh, part of God's, God's people, he was not a guy that you would put a lot of faith and trust in to build this whole thing on. Right? There's sin that keeps coming up in Abraham's life even after these events. Right? He's, he doesn't trust God. There's a weird episode with him and you know with 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 him um, kind of saying that Sarai's not his wife, right? These things come up, and Abraham is not a perfect guy. But we see over and over in the Old Testament that God chooses to work through people who are messy, who don't have it all together, who are broken, who are sinful, who when we were looking at them, we would think, why did they deserve to be the, the man or the woman that God gave this particular task to or purpose with? All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, getting in Paul and Peter and the disciples, right? I mean, like most of the people God chooses to use, if not all in the scriptures, are people through the world's eyes would think they don't deserve it. They're not good enough. Or they don't have what it takes. And really, nobody would have what it takes other than Jesus, right? It's showing that only one who has ever lived is, is deserving to carry the mantle that God gives people in the scriptures, right? So God speaks and calls Abraham. That's what 12, one through three is, right? That's the calling of Abraham. God coming to Abram out of nowhere, calling him to, 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 to be part of his family that he's creating and actually be the one where all the descendants are going to come from. Um, there's no faith in Abram at the beginning of chapter 12, and then there's faith. God speaks faith into Abram's life. And this is kind of reminiscent of Genesis 1 when God speaks and things happen, right? Nothing's, there, there's, there's nothing there that God speaks things into existence. So we know God can do that through creation. God does the same thing with Abraham here. He calls Abraham, he speaks into him faith. Listen to uh, Paul making this connection in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul says, For God, 
who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. So, he's, so Paul's going back to Genesis 1 here to remember the creation story, right? Let light shine out of the darkness, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul's even using this imagery here of God speaking faith in his grace and his mercy into our life and creating faith inside of his people. See, God comes to Abraham without anything he did. He, why did he choose Abraham? We don't know, right? We don't know why, why he chose Abraham in this moment, but he did choose him. Not by any merit of Abraham's, um, of Abraham's doing at all. And if you are a believer in here, this is how you came to faith, right? God wrought faith. He, he birthed faith within you. God calls you by his word, by the gospel. The scriptures say that the, 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 the only way we can hear and respond in faith is if the gospel is preached and we hear the gospel. And through it's the hearing of the gospel and the call of God, we believe. This is how we are saved now. So these two things are connected. Listen to Paul continuing to speak about Abraham's faith in Romans 4, 18 through 25. And, and, Ro- and Paul here is trying to teach the church in Rome what happened in Genesis 12 through so 17, right? So Paul's doing what we're trying to do here today, to understand the calling and this covenant God made with Abraham. He says in Romans 4, 18, In hope he, Abram, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So your, shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. It's nice of you, Paul. Good as dead. That's, never never like talk, of, talk about somebody's age that way, right? Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, right? So this, like, these people, like, they're, they're over 100, they're barren, they can't have children. Like, why would God choose them? No unbelief made him waver, Abram, concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So two main ideas here with kind of Abraham's faith and how he relates to God. One, um, our faith, uh, like Abraham's, is something God created, not us, number one. Number two, God's word can overcome anything. When God calls something into existence, wants something to happen, it can overcome anything. A stubborn heart, brokenness, sinful patterns, addictions, uh, pain in relationships, God's word can overcome anything on this earth. He's proven to it, proven this to us in the scriptures. And then in, verse, in chapter 17 in Genesis, God comes to Abram. He's still Abram at this point. Reminds him of the covenant. Abraham, again, is getting impatient, right? Like, I, I, I still don't have children. Like, how's this going to work, God? Like, if we're going to multiply and it's going to be like the stars, it starts with us having children. And so he says that again to God, and he reminds him of the covenant and he changes his name to Abraham. Abram, um, A-B-R-A-M, uh, uh, is exalted father. And Abraham is father of many nations. Changes his name to kind of coincide with the promise. 
He institutes circumcision here, which is a sign uh, that Abraham and his descendants are in covenant with God. It's this outward um, sign that they belong to God. And then Isaac is born a short time later, and the narrative continues. But that's where we're going to stop today. But God creates his faith inside Abram, and he gives him two commandments in Genesis 12. He gives him two commandments in Genesis 12. Um, Number one, he says, go. Okay, so if we're asking, what does this faith produce? Well, faith produces obedience, right? Faith, faith gives us salvation, but faith also produces obedience in us. It allows us to do what God is calling us to do. So the first thing he asked Abraham, Abram, at that point, I'll use them interchangeably, Abraham, to go, he says, go. He says, go, leave this place, leave Ur, leave the Chaldeans, and go to this land that I will show you, which is eventually Canaan. But he doesn't tell him that. Right? And really this leaving is more than just, um, so much more than just geography. Right? He's leaving his people. He's leaving his home. He's leaving his idolatry. More than likely that he was, he was partaking in with the rest of the Chaldeans. He's leaving all of these things. So it's not just leaving the bad things behind, but it's also leaving his good things. Right? I'm sure he had good memories there. I'm sure he had friends there. He had people there amongst the Chaldeans that he liked and enjoyed. He, 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 he probably left work, right? He left these things. He didn't, he didn't consider these things. He didn't hold them too tight, right? He left the things that would give, have given him value and identity and worth and security. And he leaves. And he goes, um, just starts walking in the direction that God tells him to go. So the question for us is, what do we hold on to so tightly? What do we hold on to so tightly that we would say, if I lost this, life wouldn't be worth living? Think about that. What's so important to you that if you lost it, you would say, I don't know if life is worth living anymore because I've lost this. Or what if, what are you holding on to so tight that when it's critiqued, when somebody comes against this thing, you lash out, you get defensive. You protect that thing with everything you have, and nothing, nobody or nothing can say anything bad about this thing because, it's, because you're treasuring it so much. What is that for you? Is it your reputation? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it your portfolio or your investments or what you're looking to for security in retirement or one day in the future? There's something for all of us that we are prone to hold so tightly onto, and part of the going that he's calling Abraham to is leaving behind the things you used to look for for those things, identity, acceptance, approval, and having an open hand and obeying God to go or to leave those things. So go is one. The second thing is to be a blessing. Be a blessing to the nations. He wants Abraham's people to serve people outside of what would become Israel. Right? To live lives that are distinct from the people, but in close proximity enough where the other nations would see them and be like, oh, I wonder why they're acting that way. I wonder why they love how they, like they love. I wonder who is controlling them or who their God is or who they worship because I want to know more about him based off of how they're living. This is what God wants to see happen through the Israelites or God's people. He wants him to be a blessing to other nations. He wants his glory and honor and fame to be known by all the nations through Abraham and his descendants. Right? This is another part of that uh, call of 
obedience. Now, it's difficult to obey both of these, though. Right? They, when you try to obey both of these, there's some tension, and, and we tend to lean one way or the other. Some of us like that go command, and, and we've done a good job kind of being distinct from the world. We've created kind of maybe, maybe a bubble around us, and we're not letting kind of the things of the world get into our life, and we're trying to remain distinct and be people that are, that are following God. That's great on one side of it, but you can quickly forget about being a blessing. If you remove yourself so far from the people who don't know God, how are you going to be a blessing? How are they going to know who God is if you're not walking alongside and amongst people who don't know God? Now, on the flip side, some of us maybe want to be more of the blessing side, right? We see ourselves as we want to be a a conduit of God's blessing in our lives. So we want to be around people and to, to, to to not kind of separate ourselves from the culture, but be amongst the culture and, uh, and walk alongside of people. But the danger here is that we lose our distinctiveness. We begin to raise kids like everyone else does. We consume the same type of entertainment as everyone else does. We let, let social media and those really strong things kind of control us uh, rather than being controlled by God. Maybe we handle our money and our free time diff- uh, the same as everybody else in the world does. And we've lost our distinctiveness, our saltiness, the scriptures say. We're, 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 we're putting a cover over our light. So you have these two commands, going, leaving your, everything behind that's old, but also remaining still a blessing. Jesus in the Gospel of John talks about this when he's praying on our behalf to his Father God. Right? He's like, he's like I, they're going to be in the world. Keep them of the world, but I pray that they're not of the world. That whole in the world, but not of the world. This is the same thing that God was calling Abraham to be. Be distinct, but be a blessing. God is creating a people to have this identity to, as the family of God. To be a family of God with distinct characteristics because he is our father, but a family that lives amongst other families in the world. Well, they'll see the family of God and say, I want that. Or who is that God? I'm intrigued by that. I don't maybe love that. Maybe that, that's hard for me to hear, but I'm intrigued by it. I want to listen more. Ligon Duncan says this about this uh, tension. The quote will be on the screen. As Christians, we must distinctively see ourselves as different from the world. We must think differently from the world. We must have a different worldview and outlook from the world. We must have a different set of priorities. We must have a different set of goals. Our agenda is different from the agenda of the world. But we do that not so we can stand out over over against the world and feel superior to the world or despise the world in the sense of not having any concern for the interests of men and women who are not part of the faith. We are distinctive in order that we can be a blessing. In other words, we must say no to the world in order that we can say yes to the world. Okay? So Jesus is our best example here, right? That's the beauty of reading the Gospels, right? Jesus was, he was so distinct. He was so different. People were so intrigued by him. He was different than everyone else, but he, got, he was constantly accused of being friends of sinners, He's hanging around tax collectors and prostitutes and the religious elite. We're always like, he's around these people all the time. He must not be who said, he said he was. No, Jesus was living in the tension, right? He was God, right? He was who he said he was. He, he was. he was holy. He was set apart in all those ways, but he was engaging to the world. He spent time around the broken, the people that needed to, to hear God's grace and hear God's mercy and see it lived out. 
Now, how do we do this, right? How do we, how do we navigate this tension other than seeing Jesus as our example? Well, it really comes again by faith. Think about it. God didn't tell Abraham where to go. He just said go, and Abraham left, right? God intentionally was not really concerned about the geography. It's open-ended. He just says, go to a place I will show you, but he, he doesn't tell him initially where he's going, and Abraham just takes off. So it's this, this obedience that Abraham had without knowing all of the answers in front of him, which is the way God calls us to live. He calls us to trust him, trust in the promises, and take the next step in obedience, even if you don't know what's down the road. Right? Questions that I ask and I hear all the time. Um, who should I date? Who should I marry? What should I major in? What job should I take? Should I go to grad school or not? Should I marry this person? Should I relocate to a different city for my work? Should I change careers? Should I take that promotion? Should I discipline my kids in that way? What school should I send my kids to? All of these questions are unknown in how they're going to turn out. But so often we're paralyzed or we want to take control over these things and ask God for more, more, more details. And that's okay. I think Abraham was asking those things as well. But often God's silent. Saying, just trust me. Do you believe that I want what's best for you? Do you believe that I am good? Do you believe that I'm a good father who would lead you astray? Trust me. Have faith in me. And sometimes we don't get an answer on those big questions, or even in the little questions in between those big questions. But if we spend time with God and know God's character, listen for God as well as we can, and as we're reading scripture and prayer, we're going to be able to walk in faith and obedience the same way Abraham did without having all of the answers because he's probably not going to lay things out step by step for us. We often look back and say, oh, step one, step two, step three, step four, after you get to a certain degree. And then we can say, yes, God, thank you for taking care of me, right? But we often don't see that on the front end as we walk into some of these questions and situations. God is looking for a family to trust him. Again, back to Genesis 3, this comes down to do we trust the goodness of God in his promises, period. That's, that's a lot of this comes down, a lot of the daily decisions we make, fighting sin, um, embracing what is good and godly and right, those things come down to do we trust God? How do we trust him? How do we have faith? Let's go back to that covenant ceremony, okay? The smoking pot and the flaming torch remember, symbolizes God's presence, uh, the one where he is walking the aisle. And Abraham would have been familiar with this custom, this ritual. And and in most cases, it would have been two kind of um, entities or maybe kings or vassals of kingdoms coming together. And maybe even with with other gods in the area. And they would make this kind of setup with the animals where their blood was shed. Animals were cut in half. There's probably blood all over the ground, right? Messy scene. And God, his presence starts to come through. And Abraham's thinking, wait a minute. Like you haven't. I'm not walking through this too. Like, what, God, what's going on? Abraham's kind of a passive observer in this. And he's been thinking, what, what's happening here? And basically what God is doing here, he's walking through the, 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 um, the aisle here for both Abraham and God. So both, God's taking both sides of the covenant upon himself. That's why he is the only one walking through it. And when you do this, this, this kind of ritual thing, what you're saying is, if I break this covenant in any way, 
If I don't hold up my end of the deal in this covenant, let this be done to me as it's been done to the animals. So if I break this agreement, I, I, blood will be shed. I will give my life up if I break this covenant. This is a big deal, right? This is, this is big time stuff you make covenants like this for. This is the promise that God is making to Abraham. He was binding himself to this blood covenant. Let's fast forward to Jesus, right? Darkness falls, it says on Abraham, he falls asleep. Darkness fell when Jesus, on the world, when Jesus was on the cross, right? Jesus was there hanging on the cross and Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Jesus says to God in that moment, right? What's happening here as we look back at Genesis 15, right? We didn't hold up our end of the deal. We never could. We can't hold up our end of the covenant with God. So what happens? Jesus is the one who walks the aisle. Jesus is the one who ends up having his body torn, his body broken on behalf of rebellious sinners like you and I. Genesis 15 is a picture of what would come on the cross. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the one being punished for our disobedience. He's the one walking the aisle on behalf of us and in our sin and, and going to the cross on our behalf. Jesus, God himself, got cut off from us. He took the punishment. This is why we can trust him. God is looking for a people to trust him, to obey him, to live out his purposes. And the only way we can do that is going back to remember what Jesus did on our behalf and letting that cause to us to have faith and belief in the goodness and the promises of God. God loves us. He cares for us. When he says, I'm going I'm to care for you, he does it. How do we know? Jesus. When we deserve to be one of the ones who our, our, our blood was shed and our bodies be torn because of our sin, Jesus says, no, I'm going to take that on myself. They don't have to walk the aisle. They don't have to walk between the animals. I'm going to walk between the animals for them the same way God did for Abraham in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is a picture for us what Jesus would do for us. This is the beauty of the story, right? Even this early on in the story, we see pictures of Jesus. So for us, sin is, once again, not trusting God and his promises. So what are you, where are you struggling right now? Where are you struggling in your thought life, your actions, your feelings, your desires, your relationships? And the second question is, how is that revealing where you're not trusting God in his goodness, right? Ask yourself, why am I looking to that for its promises to give me worth and value and identity and joy and pleasure and freedom and all those things, rather than looking to what God has promised us in his word to give us, to meet those needs? How do we leave like Abraham left? How, do we, how are we a blessing to the people around us as we live our lives? Through trust through trust and obedience and faith. How can we trust him? Because of Jesus. So the calling for us is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to remember Jesus, to think about what Jesus did, think about him being the hero of the story. 
He's, again, this isn't, this isn't, hey, Abraham, you be awesome and great, and I'm going to give you this, this awesome command, and you just go do that by yourself and, and see how it works, and we'll see how it ends up. No, God walks with Abraham, makes these covenants with him. He talks with him. He causes him to, to see his new identity as a child of God and a part of the people and family of God. And then he asks Abraham to obey along the way. This is the same for us. God is called, asking us to obey, but he never leaves us. His spirit's inside of us. We have Jesus as our example, and we received his grace and mercy in our lives. Let's pray. God, I remember the, <clears throat> the gentleman in the, uh, it was Mark 9, where his, his uh, son is sick and he comes to Jesus and asks to heal for him to heal his son, and um, Jesus says, "Just believe." And the guy says, "I, I, I, I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Like I, I, I think I believe. I don't know if I believe. I know my belief could be stronger. So, so just help me believe." And we all need that. If we all were honest with ourselves. Our belief is is often weak, is often non-existent. Sometimes it's good, but oftentimes we know we could believe at a deeper level and a stronger level. But we know that the, the strength of our belief is not the purpose, it's not the point. It's the object of whom we're believing in. No matter if our, our, our belief is the side of a, size of a mustard seed, it doesn't matter. If, that, if that's the level of our faith, that's good enough, as long as the object of our faith is Jesus. So help us, help us believe in your son, that he's the fountain of life. He's the, he's the water that, 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 that causes us to never thirst again. That he provides a way when there is no way. That he's the one that allows us to be seen in your sight and be forgiven and be brought into your family. Help us believe these things and not believe the lies of our flesh, Satan, the culture, the world. Help us believe your promise is found in your word. Help us. We need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.